All righty. Well, thanks for leading us again. It's great to be with you. You made it to the very last session. So that's pretty awesome. Great to have uh, the day together with all of you. It's been a great joy, and I'd love to talk to the rest of you that I haven't got to meet yet. So feel, please feel free to come up and say hello uh, before we all get out of here this afternoon. But here we are in our last session, and if you are following along, taking notes, you see the title for this sermon is The Surgeon, the Scalpel, and the Spouse in Sin. So as we get ready to dive into this interesting topic about biblical confrontation, I figured I'd tell you uh, one more story about Lisa and I, and this story will be about our first formal date, all right? Our first formal date after we worked through that misunderstanding where, you know, I asked her out that night, said, hey, look, Shannon's going to stay at home with Danielle. You can actually come. Let me pick you up. Let's go out and work through this. She said yes. And so not only was Shannon and Mark, the two brother-in-laws over at my house, but I had some other friends from seminary that were helping out, and they were kind of watching this drama go down. So whenever I said, hey, I'm actually going out, guys. It's going to happen. We're going out tonight. We're going to work on this. The guys asked me, like, hey, what can we do to help? And one of these guys had a nice car. So I looked at him and I said, hey, could I borrow your car for tonight? He had like a Mustang convertible. And he said, yeah, of course. Let me drive it through the wash, fill it up with gas. You take it for the night. I'm like, awesome. The next guy said, hey, what can I do to help? And I'm like, hey, you know what? I need some sparkling apple cider. I need a candle and a lighter and two little goblets. Can you get that for me? He said, yeah, I'll be right back. I dispatch him out. He goes out. And then the third guy came up to me and said, dude, what can I do? And I said, I need a bouquet of flowers and a card. Hurry back. So he goes out to get his stuff. I take a shower, get cleaned up, and now it's time. It's time for the hot date where we're going to work all this out. So I put all the stuff in the car, drive over in the convertible, and I uh, park uh, there at the house where Lisa lived, and I went around the back and put the bouquet of flowers and a nice card in the back of the house. And the idea was, after we left, Danielle was going to take that, put it in Lisa's room, so that when we got home from the date, it would be like, oh, Annie sent flowers. Isn't that nice? Now, this is either going to be crash or burn, or like I should say, whatever, you make it or you don't make it, because I wrote a lot of nice things in that card. And I'm like, either she's going to hate my guts forever, or uh, this will be a nice ending to, you know, the night. So that, that was the first step. Then I pick uh, Lisa up. She gets in the convertible. Whose car is this? Oh, it's just a friend's car, but tonight we're in the convertible. So we drive out to the Macaroni Grill. It's a nice Italian restaurant where they sing uh, and you eat, and it's like a great spot there in Santa Carita. So we go to the Macaroni Grill, and finally, while we're sitting down, at dinner, we start talking about it, about our misunderstanding and trying to kind of laugh a little bit about that. And, and, um, and, and then I ordered cheesecake to go for dessert because I had another spot I wanted to go to. And we asked the waitress if we could have like some plastic wear to go because we're going to take this out. She comes back to us and says, I don't have any plastic, but you can have the real silverware. It's on the house and hands us these two white napkins with the real silverware, which is in our set right now. Occasionally, while we're eating dinner, I can be like, hey, honey, remember this night right here? Because it's a little different pattern than the rest of our, our stuff, you know. So then we, we hop in the car. We drive to the top in Santa Clarita of what's called Nike's Point. And it's this place up at the top of the, of the hills around, the mountains around, where you can look down into the valley. Little did I know, the college and the local students there call it Makeout Point. Uh, but that wasn't my point, to make out, all right? My point was to communicate, to communicate. So we drive up to the top. Pop the, the, the convertible top down. I like this candle. Put on some Frank Sinatra. 
pull back some of the sparkling apple cider, pour a glass, non-alcoholic, right, pour a glass for each one of us, and then we just talk. You know, we're just sitting there on the top of this hill, looking down to the valley, and I'm like, Lisa, I am so sorry that I haven't been more clear in my intentions in our relationship. And for me, this is about dating with a point. And that point would be to see if God would bring us together for marriage. And I would like to ask you to date me, to be my girlfriend, that we would be like doing this together and see what the Lord has. And she was like, I would love to date you. I thought you'd never ask, you know, because <laughs> up to that moment, you know, we weren't being as clear about that part of it. So that was really helpful. I, re- I remember telling her also that evening, I said, hey, well, just so you know, now that we're dating and we got that out of the way, I'm not planning to kiss until I get married. And she said, well, I'm planning to kiss the guy I get engaged to. And I said, well, if that ever happens, we'll have to rehab this conversation. But for right now, no kissing. And so that's the way it was. We were trying to set some boundaries early on in our relationship. And so that was our first formal date. And after that night, um, the next day, I called her dad because that happened so quickly. And I called her dad on the phone. I said, hey, I'm so sorry I didn't call, uh, you know, yesterday, but I would like to ask for permission to date your daughter with the intention of getting married. And, um, and we kind of did it already last night. So I hope you're okay with that. But do I have permission? He said, yes, of course. We met you at Thanksgiving. We, you know, we already called Rick Holland and checked up on you. He says, you're, you know, you're a great guy. So we're for it. And, uh, and so we dated for like a week. And then one week later, Shannon, I don't know how many of y'all know Shannon, but he's like in my ear, like, Tyson, when you getting married? And I'm like, you know, I have, I mean, it's no, it's not fair, really. You got Rick Holland and Shannon, and they're both at you about, you should just get married. And I'm like, we've been dating like two weeks. And they were like, we don't care, man. We think we see this happening. So sure enough, I call her dad one week later. And I said, Mr. Seahuson, I know it's only been a week. <laughs> but... This is that phone call where I'm asking for your daughter's hand in marriage. And let me just say, if you're not comfortable, we're happy to wait. You want us to wait a year? Well, I don't know if I can do a year, but six months. If you want us to wait six months, we're happy to wait. But this is where we're at, and this is what's going on. And he said, no, I already talked to Rick. You guys are good. He assured me that if if he does y'all's premarital, if he sees something that doesn't look right, he'll pump the brakes. So we just trust that you guys are going to do this, and we're excited for you. We're praying for you. And, And that was just it. I mean, it was just like, listen, I was 28, right? I had not dated in 10 years. That's a long time. Uh, Lisa was 21. She hadn't dated in about six months or something. But anyway, so <laughs> so uh, the Lord has blessed us with 19 years. And you know, the truth is every relationship matures at different stages and ages. I mean, I was older. That's why part of why it went so quickly, you know. But I always tell people, look, if you've known somebody for five weeks, I think the total from that first informal coffee date to engagement was five weeks. So we'll go with that. Sounds a little bit better. Five weeks instead of, instead of the one or two weeks. But if you've known each other for five weeks, are you going to have problems when you get married? Absolutely. What if you've known somebody for five months? You're going to have problems when you get married? Yeah. What if you've known somebody for five years? You're going to have problems when you get married? Yes. So the key is really, in my opinion, are you mature enough? I'm not saying that we're perfect because we're still growing. 
And, uh, but it's, are you mature enough to resolve conflict biblically, to have a commitment and conviction to follow biblical roles and responsibilities? To me, that's way more important than, you know, just how long have you known them, even though I think that's an, an important aspect. So please don't, don't look at our relationship. I'll try to say this like at youth camps, if you guys were there. Some of you just told me they were there at the uh, youth camp called, uh, what's it called? Ascend, Ascend Camp, you know, I was talking to the students about it. I'm like, don't do what we did, basically. Don't do it. You know, follow uh, your parents and your pastor's wisdom. And if it does go in that direction, maybe it would happen, but it's kind of rare. But anyway, that's just our story. Just sharing that with you as a testimony of God's goodness and a reminder of now I've set the bar pretty high. The rest of my romantic life is like I'm out of ideas. I use them all in dating and engagement, so sometimes I need some help. So if you guys got some good romantic ideas, please, I shared mine with you. Come share some with me, and we can work together to still, you still got it, Bart? You still got it? Uh Uh-oh, he's looking at that. All right, we're all working and growing together. Okay, here we go. We're transitioning, transitioning. This is uh, session four. His wife says, yes, he's still got it. All right, so session four, the Spurgeon, I'm saying the Spurgeon, the surgeon, the scalpel, and the spouse in sin. That's what we're looking at. All right, you ready? Some selected scriptures. We'll look at a few of them as we go. Let me kick it off this way. There are over 53 million surgeries performed in the U.S. every year. And some of those surgeries are emergencies, and some are urgent, and some are scheduled, and some are elective surgeries. And I've had the privilege of assisting in over 2,500 surgeries myself as a former physician's assistant in cardiovascular and thoracic surgery. And I don't remember a single person who was ever looking forward to getting the surgery done. Right? They were looking forward to the results of the surgery, but not to actually having the surgery itself. I mean, there's an unbelievable amount of preparation that you have to go through in order to get the surgery done. There is a history and physical to be performed along with your vital signs and your fasting blood work, if possible, a few days in advance with x-rays. You typically have to go to the lab and get all that done as pre-op. And then there's the morning of the surgery where you show up to the hospital at like some ridiculous hour of 4 or 5 a.m., and they ask you to put on a funny gown that makes you feel uncomfortable and self-conscious about your body. And then there's like a million people who you have to see and none of them are your doctor. And finally, you get wheeled into the operating room for them to put you to sleep and then the procedure starts. And this really is all an act of faith, isn't it? I mean, you're paying someone that you don't know a lot of money to cut on your body. And surgery at times, though, is essential for your body's health. In fact, you could easily say that without surgery, many people would die. And so this afternoon, I want to talk to you about the importance of spiritual surgery. And as you know, Jesus is presented in the scriptures as the great physician. Jesus is the chief surgeon. But he also has surgical residence in training like you and like me. Call it what you want, but the Bible calls for us to do spiritual surgery on one another. The Bible uses words like rebuke, reprove, confront, admonish, instruct, exhort, and encourage. And these words require action on your part, and it requires that you approach another person. Now, please know that I'm assuming that we've already built this foundation on biblical manhood and womanhood between husbands and wives and communication. If we had time, we would have done a whole session on forgiveness. So we're assuming all those are in place. 
And we're also encouraging us to add the sweetener of mercy that flavors your marriage as you apply all these principles. And I want to talk to you about how do you do biblical spiritual surgery. And I'm talking about something that a lot of marriage books don't include. I'm talking about biblical confrontation in marriage. And in order for your marriage to be able to go to the next level, then you have to be willing to do surgery on one another. Let me tell you the real secret to spiritual surgery. You must sign a consent to be operated on before you start using the scalpel as the surgeon. You say, Adam, what do you mean? I mean that if you're not willing to first be operated on, then you don't have the right to operate on someone else. You see, most of you in here might have been, I shouldn't say most, I should have said some of you in here might have been waiting for this final sermon to say, I love it. I'm a good surgeon. I'd love to take the scalpel and help trim some things off of my spouse, right? Finally, I get to start fixing my spouse, wheel them in here. I've got my scalpel in hand and I'm ready to get started. Well, if that's you, I would say not so soon, right? First, you must be willing to be operated on. Some of you have the opposite response. You're like, oh no, not surgery. I don't like to be cut on. I don't like to be corrected. And if you're going to get into all that you need, you know, then you might just be like, I'm out. Why don't you just give me an epidural right now? Well, listen, I offer you the anesthesia of the Holy Spirit. He's going to help with the surgery, right? It's done through the Spirit, through the Word, to help us cut on one another in a God-honoring way. So our attempt tonight, or this afternoon, is to look at seven principles on spiritual surgery in the form of a question. In the form of a question. Number one, why is spiritual surgery necessary? And I would say spiritual surgery is good for you, right? It's good for you. Excuse me, as a part of the spirit of the Hippocratic Oath taken by physicians, the concept there is first, do no harm. So anything that a doctor does is for your good, and we're taking that same spirit into spiritual surgery. Spiritual surgery is necessary because it's not designed to harm you, but to help you. I like Psalm 141, 141, verse 5. Psalm 141, verse 5, it says this. Let a righteous man strike me, and it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. You know what that passage is saying? It's good to be struck by a righteous man, and it's good to be rebuked by a righteous man. In fact, it's kindness and it's oil on my head. It's the humble attitude of a patient waiting to be operated on, willing to receive correction for their own benefit. The next click says spiritual surgery gives life. It gives life. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Gains intelligence. I'm just saying to us, like, I think we all know those passages. Like, okay, I need to listen to reproof and listen to the wise man. What if the wise man is your wife? What if the wise man is your husband showing you indeficiencies in your life that you need to work on? I mean, I still remember Rick Holland very specifically telling us that the most sanctifying thing that would ever happen in our lives is beginning married. And I wondered what he meant. Because typically we talk about like, oh, that's really sanctifying as if it's a trial. 
Now, hopefully you don't think of marriage primarily as a trial, but as a blessing. And in that blessing, God's using your spouse to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. Isn't that what we want? And then he told us the second most sanctifying thing that we'll ever go through in our life is to have kids. And that God uses the spouse and God uses kids because he loves you so much that he blesses you with those gifts. And those gifts in return, ideally, in the Lord and through Scripture, are going to help you be sanctified. We're talking simply about how biblical wisdom and intelligence is not only about reading the Bible, but actually addressing issues in your life. And nobody helps me do that more than my wife. Look, I'm a pastor. I've got five other elders on our elder team, and guess how many of them get in my kitchen and confront me on sin? Like, nobody from the congregation does it. Our elders might do it on occasion, but, you know, we hold each other accountable, but it's not like, hey, you need to change in this area. But guess who does that? There's one person, and it's not my mama, who helps me more than anyone else. And you know what I'm saying to you today? I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I have a wife that I am able to lean on and depend on knowing that what she says is for the purpose of helping, right? It's Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. She's my best friend. She's my most helpful instrument in my personal sanctification. Why wouldn't I adore that and welcome that and want that? So let's move on. Spiritual surgery, next click, is commanded by Christ. Pay attention to yourselves, Jesus said in Luke 17, 3. And if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we understand again that we are to be rebuking one another as is appropriate in love and patience as we're looking at in this particular talk. D, your next click there. Spiritual surgery is a way to pursue peace and unity in the relationship. It's a way to pursue peace and unity, according to Colossians 3, 15 and 16. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonishing one another is not just Bart and the pastors to the congregation. It's you admonishing your children, and it's you admonishing your spouse as is appropriate, in love and in patience, in a way that would honor the Lord. When two sinners say, I do, that's the whole point of uh, Dave Harvey's book. We're still sinners, but we're committed to each other, and we got to help each other as those who've been born again. And part of how we help each other is to point out each other's sin. E, spiritual surgery shows knowledge in action. It shows knowledge in loving action. Again, Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Listen, I believe in biblical complementarianism. We've been discussing that, but I believe my wife can take the Bible, and anytime she wants, she can instruct me something from Scripture that I need to hear, either in my way I'm talking, the way I'm acting, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm coveting, the way I'm living life, and she has every right to do that. Doesn't mean she's my head, right? But it does mean she's my partner and fellow Christian and sister in Christ, and she has every right to take God's Word and instruct me on a practical issue in that moment. Like if I was lying, it's okay for her to instruct me, hey, honey, God's Word says to speak the truth. And to be honest, I feel like you're lying to me. You know, it's okay in those moments for her to instruct me from Scripture. And so if you know what God's Word says, then we're called to instruct one another. Marriages are not built on silence. They're built on substance. 
And hopefully you have a marriage that's built on willingness to have those conversations. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? I'm not saying that your whole marriage is a bloody operation with fluids flying all over the place. You know, the constant joy of rebuking one another. No, but there is a time when something needs to be said and you have to be willing to say it and you have to be willing for it to be said to you. The last thing I want to say here on this first point is F, spiritual surgery is one of the best ways to help your spouse. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15 says, and we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So that verse, as you know, is hinting at different ways, different styles of approach and different situations depending on what's going on. Is there idleness or rebellion? It needs to be admonished. Is there faint-heartedness? It needs to be encouraged. Is there weakness? It needs to be helped. So we want to do that artfully and in the right way. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, you know, I haven't had a ton of spiritual uh, surgery done to me in my life until I got married. I mean, I was saved in an early age, age eight. I had parents who loved me, and I was loved in my local church, and I received superlatives from my high school. I was the prom king. I had all kinds of people just loving on me and doting on me all the time, and I still escaped much of the surgery that I needed. And then God provided a wife, and God's used my wife more than any other person in this point in my life to point out my son. And I'm saying to you, and she does a great job. She does a great job. I mean, she's like a cheerleader. She cheers me on, but she's willing to also bring in the knife when it's needed, right? I mean, she, she's a great cheerleader and a great surgeon. I mean, she, 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 has a, a, she has a pom-pom that cheers me on and encourages me. I like that, right? I like to be pom-pommed. Don't you? You like to be pom-pommed? Your whole life, you've been encouraged, pom-pommed. I love to be, I mean, pom-pom me, baby. I'll take it. Bring out the pom-poms. Give me an A. A, give me a D. D, give me an A. You guys aren't pom-pomming. Come on. Give me an M. <laughs> Cheer it on, baby. Come on. I love it. That's what my wife does. She cheers me on like no other. Go, Adam, Go. But not only is Lisa my personal cheerleader, she's my personal surgeon. I mean, she has a pom-pom in one hand and a scalpel in the other. And the way that looks in our marriage is cheer, cut, cheer, cut, cheer, cheer, cut, cut. I mean, just look at this little thing. She wills the scalpel like no other. Dr. Tyson, Dr. Lisa J. Tyson, please come to operating room number four. Bring your longest, sharpest scalpel. Anesthesia, no, he doesn't need it. Just do it. Do the surgery. That's what she's like. And she does a great job. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. What if she never did that? What if she never wielded the scalpel and all I heard was pom-pom? I'd be prideful. And I'd be missing half of what I need from her. It's not only the encouragement, but it's also the skillful, careful, loving rebuke. Let me move on to our second question that we want to ask. Number two, are there examples of spiritual surgery in the Bible? I think this goes without saying, but God confronted Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.13. Samuel confronted King Saul, 1 Samuel 15.14. 
You know these passages are all rich with, with uh, context. C, Nathan confronted King David, as you know, caught in, the, in adultery. D, Christ confronted the Pharisees. Oh, did he ever? Big time confrontation there. Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. And then you have Paul even confronting Peter, Galatians 2, for wigging out on, you know, not eating with the Jews anymore or with the Gentiles anymore when the Jews showed up in the town. My point is simply this. Doing spiritual surgery is seen throughout the Bible. And unlike the advancements made in modern surgery, such as anesthesia, minimally invasive uh, type of, of surgery, laparoscopic surgery, robotic surgery, spiritual surgery is still spiritual surgery. And we are to be involved in it on a regular basis. And the annals of spiritual surgery are to be examined throughout the biblical history and still be practiced today. We are to pick up the sword and use it. This moves us to number three. What should happen in the pre-op workup? What should happen in the pre-op workup? A, should I let love cover this? Should I just let love cover this? Well, notice 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8 says, Above all, keeping or keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's a hot verse that could be debated. And I would suggest to you that we've misunderstood it. A lot of times when we say, let love cover, you know, we'll say that, use that often in the church. What we mean is turn a blind eye to, don't worry about it, don't address it, have patience, just let love cover. Love doesn't deal with it. Love covers it. And I don't think that's the meaning of the text. I think let love cover means you're willing to expose it. You're willing to seek God's help on it. You're willing to forgive it. And Christ's blood covers it. So you choose to remember it no more. And I think that's a different connotation than how we typically, oh, just let love cover. And what happens is the wife never addresses all this stuff in her husband's life. I mean, I've had it happen so many times. They come in, the wife is like, I didn't want to confront my husband on it because, you know, I didn't know I was supposed to. I was just going to let love cover. I'm like, that's not what love covers means. Love cover, run to the blood of Jesus and let the blood of Jesus cleanse. And then the covering comes from Christ, cleansing right? Not just us somehow covering something that they're doing. Now, if you want to apply it with preferences, like be long-suffering with your wife's or your husband's idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy, then absolutely, you know, give them, give them some patience. I do all kinds of things that drives my wife's crazy. Can you please stop doing that? You know, that, that, and if you want to apply let love cover in that way, I would be okay with it, but not when there's sin involved. That's the point I'm trying to make. When there's sin involved, Christ needs to be addressing that through his word, and you could be an instrument to help do that. B, am I, le- am I even in a position to do the surgery? You know, we talked about you got to be willing to take it. If you're going to dish it, you got to take it. So number one, I would say you must see your sin first. You must see your sin first. And I'm talking about Matthew 18, 23 to 35, the parable that Jesus teaches that we're all 10,000 talent sinners. Remember that parable? There's a king, he's got two servants. One owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents in today's currency is $8 billion. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of labor. And the king forgave him that debt. It's an amazing uh, parable. Then that same servant who was forgiven 10,000 talents goes out and finds someone who owes him what? 100 denarii. One denarii is one day's wage. 100 denarii is uh, a third of your annual salary. So if you're making 60K, 100 denarii is 20K. Is that a big debt? It is to me. (laughs) 20K is a big debt for me. But is it compared to 8 billion? 
Does 100 denarii compare to 10,000 talents? It's like light years apart. What's the point of the parable? You and I are the 10,000 talent sinner. You and I have sinned against God and we owe him a debt we could never pay. And yet he forgave us. And now we go out and find others who owe us 100 denarii, which is a much lesser debt, and we sometimes want to choke them. That's what happens in the parable. The guy choked him and threw him in prison. Then the king finds out, brings him back in. Says, I for, he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, and you can't go forgive this other person their debt? And if we don't keep that front and center, that our sin is worse. I mean, we got to see our sin first. That's the second one. Number two, you must see your sin is worse. What you've done against a holy God, which is what you're responsible for, is worse than someone else's sin. And all I mean by that is because that's someone else's sin. But for you, you have to deal with what you've done before God. Paul says he's the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners. He had a right perspective. Or number three here, you must work on your sin the most. You must work on your sin the most. Again, Matthew 7, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Why? Why are you supposed to take the log out of your own eye? Sometimes we just read that, that passage and stop right there. Oh, just take the log out of your own eye. What does it say next? And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He never says, don't remove the speck. He just first says, first you got to get the log out. Get the log out, pre-op. Get yourself right with the Lord, and then you'll be an instrument in my hands that I can use to wield my sword in a way that will be positive and helpful. Next click, do I have my facts right? Other things, again, what we should be doing in the pre-op. Proverbs 18, 13, if someone gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. Look, even as husband and wife, we think we know each other really well, but sometimes I can misread Lisa's P's and Q's. I think I got it all figured out, and she meant this, and I thought she meant that. We still have misunderstandings, even to this day, even though I'm working on it. And God knows that I'm learning better and better, but I'm just saying so many times we don't have our facts right. We make assumptions that the other person meant evil or something vile or mean, and we just didn't really understand them. And so we get really, you know, quickly decide to do surgery. No one likes an over-eager surgeon who tries to wheel someone into surgery before he's had the proper consultation, right? I mean, you know, we, did you know there's actually stories, uh, true occurrences in the hospital where a doctor cut off the wrong leg? I mean, it happens, and the doctor gets sued, and he probably is not going to practice again. <laughs> I was in some surgery where we had to cut off a leg, and they just mark it with a marker. They come in, cut this one off, this one. You know, and then they double check, triple check four times. Is this the right leg? Are we sure? Do we know we have it? And we cut the leg off. The doctor hands it to me and said, here, go put that in the trash can. I'm like walking across the OR like this with a leg. I'm sorry to gross you out. But, you know, you want to make sure that you get your facts right. Are you cutting on the right thing? You don't cut on the right thing. It's a disaster. And in marriage, we want to make sure we know what we're dealing with. D, have we prayed for help? Have you prayed for help? Search me, O God. David says in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, Know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So important, because those conversations are not easy. So God, I need your help to make sure I'm pre-opping my own heart right, and I'm prayed up and ready. The fourth question we could ask is this. Number four, how do you do the surgery successfully? How do you do the surgery successfully? A, make sure the timing is right. 
Make sure the timing is right. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So again, patiently approaching this. Proverbs 25.11, I mentioned last session, a word fitly spoken. It's like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken. Said the right way at the right time. Don't just jump in. But as soon as, you know, as soon as you get home, don't like attack your spouse. You know, do some pre-op first. You know, I would say to a wife, wait until your husband gets home, has dinner, you know, fatten him up a little bit, give him something to drink, cup of sweet tea. Hey, honey, I'd like to talk to you about something. That's, that's beautiful. But not right when he hits the door. Honey, you didn't do half the things I told you to do this week. What's going on? You know, it's like, I mean, I know you ladies aren't like that. I'm talking about the other ladies in the other churches around here. You know, but you, you guys are good. You guys are good. But it's just making sure that you're just being tactful, patient, kind in how you approach. I would suggest next, B, do the surgery in a private setting. Obviously, the OR is a very private setting, the operating room, right? It's very intimate. Only those who are credentialed are in there. They're, they're professionals who are going to do the surgery. You don't just go out public and do surgery. That's, again, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, I told you, sometimes at least now, resolve conflict in front of the kids, if it's smaller, to model for them reasonable resolution. But oftentimes, we need to go into a private setting, you know, in our bedroom or out on the back patio. Hey, honey, let's, can you come, come with me outside? I would like to talk through this a little bit more. And the kids kind of know, you know, of course, they always like to check on us. You know, they come out one by one, you know. I'm like, hey, guys, can you give us a couple minutes? We're just talking through, through some stuff. Your mom's helping me with some stuff. They kind of know what's going on, right? But we want to remind them that, that, we, that, that in a private setting would be appropriate. Don't try to, you know, get others to agree with you and to uh, help pile up on an argument, like get half the kids to agree with you and the other half agree. I mean, none of that's really helpful. C, let's move on. C, speak the truth in love with the motive to help. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. Ephesians 4.29, last session, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, only that which is helpful for building up to give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4.6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to help each person. How, how, you may, how you may be able to answer each person. Remember the, 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 the four rules that we talked about of communication? Be honest, keep current, Attack the problem, not the person. Act, don't react. Those just keep coming up in our minds often. If we don't articulate it, hopefully we're thinking it. You know, sometimes I'll say, take the ice cream sandwich approach. You know what the ice cream sandwich approach is? Something, something good, and then you give it to them, and then there's something good. You know, the ice cream sandwich, I kind of like the top and the bottom. I mean, the ice cream's good, but it's the top and the bottom. So the ice cream sandwich is, hey, honey, I'm so thankful for you know, A, B, C, D. Okay, sometimes she knows what's coming next. But can I also say that's the ice cream, and then you end it with, but honey, you're doing a great job. I'm just so blessed. I don't even know how you do it, you know, or, or whatever. I'm just saying sometimes you could be kind, talk about what you want to talk about, and be kind. That, that's a helpful strategy that would be gracious. D, be quick to confess your own part in the matter. My goodness, so many times we just keep going, keep going, keep going till finally somebody stops. I call this put the pen in the balloon. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until I can say, hey, you know what, honey? I am angry right now and I need to confess this to you and to the Lord. And will you please forgive me in this moment? 
I am, I am contributing to this problem. I'm thinking of James 4, verses 1 through 2. Why do we fight and quarrel? Is it not this? You desire and you don't have. So you murder. You know the passage, right? James 4, 1 through 2. I'm sorry I don't have time to, to unpack all of that, but it's such a reminder of I need to confess my part to play in the situation. And if I can do that, and the faster I do that, the quicker we get to healing. But if the balloon's still blowing up, and I haven't taken a pen, or Lisa maybe takes the pen, if it's her needing to do that, pop the balloon. Hey, I'm upset. And now let's use some biblical words. I'm angry. I'm being selfish. I spoke to you harshly. I, I have judged you. Will you please forgive me? I want to hear what you're saying, and I want to also learn how I can approach this in a better way. So E, communicate a desire to restore the relationship. I mean, hopefully this isn't like ending in divorce, right? Point of spiritual surgery is restoration and healing, not divorce. You know, it's not spiritual amputation, like I talked about the leg a minute ago. It's spiritual surgery to recover. So communicate the desire. Say, hey, honey, I love you. And I want us to be restored in a right relationship. I'm thinking about the principle of Galatians 1, uh, sorry, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So make sure that it is clear that you're not trying to end your marriage. You actually are trying to help. And the point is, we have to talk about it to help us have a stronger marriage. This is not about divorce. I'm not threatening divorce. I'm not saying, I'm going to divorce you. I'm leaving you. I'm done with you. Nothing like that, right? Honey, I want to help you. Honey, I need to be helped by you. Let's, let's help each other work through this in a way that would be helpful. I, I really like uh, Matthew Henry, Puritan Matthew Henry. I have his big fat commentary, you know, on my desk. I pull it out for a lot of my sermons just because it's good to, you know, he's got some, something to say on the whole Bible commentary. Here's what he says uh, somewhere in that book. He says this, quote, The three qualifications of a good surgeon are requisite in a reprover. He should have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, and a lady's hand. In short, he should be endued with wisdom, courage, and meekness. I think that's a good summary. You know, we've got to have wisdom. Is this a wise way to approach this? I have to have courage to do it because a lot of people just don't do it. That's why I'm risking here saying, hey, we've got to do this, people, with God's help. Otherwise, who's going to do it? If it's not Lisa correcting me, I'm not getting a lot of correction. And I need correction. So that's the courage to do it. And my wife has a lot of courage and meekness and meekness that she does so gently. You know, meekness is power under control, power, but it's under control. And that's what we need. That's kind of spirit as we move forward into these kinds of spiritual surgeries. Let's move on. Number five, why is closing up a critical part of the surgery? Well, we want to make sure we A, tie off any loose ends. Tie off any loose ends. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The next verse, Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health, health to the whole body. I mean, one thing's for sure, we don't want to leave any kind of leak in surgery. You know, when I did surgery, we would do uh, coronary artery bypass grafts. And so you take that saphenous vein, 
or the left internal mammary artery off the internal chest wall, or sometimes we take a radial artery out of a person's arm to use as the conduit. And when we sew in those grafts, distal to the blockage, and then the proximal end of the conduit goes to the aorta. Have I lost you all? <laughs> You're tracking with me a little bit. I mean, this is surgery. Come on, people. So when you do all that, you don't want any leaks, right? The last thing you want is for them to bleed out that night, which sometimes happens. So you put in the chest tubes, you send them up to the CVICU, and you just wait. And you call into the nurse, hey, how they doing? How they doing good? How their fluids? What's their hematocrit? What's their hemoglobin? Hey, how much blood's in the chest tube? Oh, you're at 60 cc's? Okay, we're good. But what if all of a sudden they're like, hey, you're bleeding out. The chest tube is full. There's blood coming out everywhere. Guess what we got to do? We got to go back. We take that patient right back down to the OR and open up their chest, and we find that leak because they're about to die. That happens. I mean, I wish it never happened, but it happens. It's not usually the surgeon's fault. It's usually the tissue of an older person that the tissue's already been damaged. It just doesn't hold. You know what I'm saying? But we get sued anyway. <laughs> I mean, it happens. What? You killed grandpa. Well, grandpa was going to die probably, but we tried to save his life. No offense, but we tried to save his life, but they bleed out. And I'm just saying, what am I saying? I don't, I'm getting lost back in the old world. <laughs> we would have... We want to be careful. I think that's what I'm trying to communicate. All right. When you do the surgery spiritually, do it well so that when you close, you don't have to come back in. Anybody like to rehash the whole thing you just spent an hour on? No. So make sure you do it well, do it thoughtfully, do it patiently in such a way that when you leave, hopefully you don't have to come back. If you have to go back, I mean, you have to go back, but hopefully not. B, make sure not to leave anything behind. Same concept said a different way. You guys know when you close up any operation, you do a count. Count all the instruments, you count all the gauzes. All the gauzes have that blue stripe on them that is radiopaque. So that what happens is, hey, do you have all the gauze and instruments? Well, I got all the instruments, but I'm missing, missing one gauze. The circulating, or the scrub tech will tell us, I'm missing one gauze. And we're like, oh, my word. So we're looking for it. Where is that gauze? Where is that gauze? Oh, it's on the floor. Good. That's great. Now it's all accounted for. Oh, it's not on the floor. Where is it? We don't know. So what do we do? We order x-ray, right? X-ray, you got to come in. They bring the C-arm in. They put half of it above the body, below the body, take the picture. Boom, there it is. There is a gauze in the chest, to which we dive in. No, I'm just kidding. We carefully go in with our hands and find that gauze and pull it out because you can't leave that in there. If you leave that in there, you will be sued. And it's, and it's your fault on that one, right? Because you weren't careful as you're closing up. What am I saying? I'm saying as you're closing up, take the time to be careful to tie off the loose ends. Don't leave stuff in there. I would like to say things like close up the conversation nicely. And the first thing people see, by the way, after surgery is the last thing you did during the surgery which is the scar. So when you're coming out, you're closing it all up. You're trying to just finish it up and hopefully it's neat and helpful and loving and it's not like a bloody mess is what I'm trying to say. All right, move on. C, close your time with prayer. That's one way to do that. If Lisa and I had a really rough talk, we want to close our time in prayer, right? First John 5, 15 says, uh, 14 says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Guess what we're praying in that moment? God, would you help us? Lord, we're a mess. And our marriage right now is suffering because of our sin. Would you help us put this marriage back to where you want it to be? And guess what? God answers prayers that are prayed humbly and in accordance to his will. Does he want your marriage to be godly? You bet he does. So he's going to answer that prayer. Here's, here's what I found in really tough times. A couple, they don't want to pray together. So what do you do? 
You know, they went through the surgery. You're trying to recover. You're counting the gauze. You're trying to get out back to kind of normal life. <clears throat> and then uh, hopefully a husband will say to the wife, hey, honey, let's pray together. What do you do if the wife says, I don't want to pray with you? What does that show you in that moment? What does it show you? Something's not right, right? Something's still off. Now, I get it. Maybe the husband was a jerk, and he was defensive, and he came in with a heavy hand and all that, and, and, and she might have, you know, a reason to say, look, I'm not just going to pray with you. Like, that's all better. I, I can understand that. But what I want to be cautious about is it's not like, I'm just so hurt. I don't want to pray with you. Is prayer ever wrong? I mean, I mean, guys, some people could argue it is, but I would argue that it's not. It's always a good thing. God, would you help us? I know we had a hard conversation. Help me, Lord. Help my spouse. She prays. I pray. I, she pray. You know, let's pray. And that would be a super healthy way to wrap things up. I also like to, to, to add touch. Physical touch is important in the post-op care. You know, when people come out of the operating room, I grab their hand. I grab their arm. Hey, you made it. You're doing good. We're going to extubate you. And, you know, you're, you're in good shape great job. You know, that's just helpful to be there. And in and, and an argument between a husband and wife, it's been resolved biblically, then we ought to let love be genuine, hold fast to what is good, and love each other with brotherly affection, outdo one another, showing honor, Romans 12, 9 and 10. And I'm just saying we can apply that in marriage. You know, that's what I do with my kids. Like if I spank them when they were younger and we seek forgiveness, then I say, hey, come here. I love you. Give me a hug. And if one of my kids can't hug me, guess what? We're not done. Hey, we're sitting right here. We're going to keep talking about it until I get a hug from you that you, like a hug that you mean, you know, and then you might crack a joke or change, you know, just help them get out of that, that funky mood that they're in because, because you need to be able to hug them, right? If you do that with your kids, wouldn't it be wise to be able to have that, that same sentimentality with your spouse? Hey, come here, honey. I love you. And if they can't, get up, don't touch me. Something's not right. That means we got more work to do to keep working towards it. Number six, how do you respond to surgery from your spouse? Please do not be defensive. Do not be defensive. This whole sermon's about be willing to take it because you need to also be willing to dish it. So that means be willing to take it. Don't be defensive. A wise son, Proverbs 13, 1, hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Do you want to be wise? Everybody said... Yes, then you have to listen to rebuke. You can't rebuff everything they say. Maybe your spouse is slightly off the mark on some things some of the time. But most of the time, they have something to contribute that's objective and helpful, and you can't be defensive. You need to be able to receive that. Listen, we're all a mess. Right? We all, we're all sinners, saved by grace. So technically, we're saints who still sin, but you get what I'm saying. We all still struggle with ongoing sin, but you got to be, know that person loves you. Know that person loves you. Again, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So when your spouse is confronting you, that's the next click, by the way. Know that that person loves you. Yeah, when, you're, when your spouse is confronting you, hopefully they're doing it out of love. That's how the Father confronts us, according to Hebrews 12, 6. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Now, again, I understand we're not talking about parenting, but marriage, but the principle still stands. They're trying to help you because they love you. See, next blank, consider what they are saying. At least consider what they're saying because it's a fool who is right in his own eyes, Proverbs 12, 15. But a wise man listens to advice. There's a kernel of truth in almost every rebuke if it's coming from someone who loves you. D, next click, Ask God what he wants you to learn. Ask God what he wants you to learn. 
Good sense wins favor, Proverbs 13, 15, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. In everything, the prudent acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. If nothing else, God is using your spouse to sanctify you. And whether they are doing it in the perfect way or slightly off from perfection, God has still put them in your life to help you. E, ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Again, we're talking about responding when they point it out. Hopefully, you can see it. Hopefully, you know, it's popping the pen in the balloon again where it's getting bigger, bigger, bigger. You've been defending, 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 and finally you're like, hey, you're right. I, I have not been loving you in this proper way. Please forgive me. And when we confess our sins, what does God do? He's faithful and just to what? To forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What's the, why is it so hard to just say, I am in sin. Please forgive me. You know how many husbands and wives I counsel with who have never confessed their sin to each other? I, it's, I, I'm appalled. We, we're a great church, just like this church and those around here. And sometimes a couple comes in. I'm like, when's the last time your husband asked for forgiveness? And she's like, never. I'm like, is that true? And I look to him and he's like, yeah, I, don't, I don't, have never done that. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what forgiveness looks like, how to ask for forgiveness and grant forgiveness based on biblical teaching, because you need to be confessing your sins to one another. I mean, when you just keep fighting, the surgery just takes longer. It does. It just takes longer and longer. Whenever we would put patients out for open heart surgery, if the anesthesiologist didn't give them enough anesthesia, guess what happens halfway through the surgery? They start waking up. Guess what that causes? All kinds of problems. Whoa, whoa, he's trying to sit up. Give him some more juice, doctor. You know, we're like holding him down and they got to give him some more and it kind of messes up what we're working on. You don't want that. That's like not good anesthesia, right? You want them out for the right amount of time. I'm just saying, uh, I'm just saying, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying, um, yeah, just be quicker to confess your sin instead of fighting against that. I just think too many people fight for too long. Confess it. Let's move on. Last one, number seven. What do you do in case of an emergency? Well, certainly you got to stop the bleeding. That's where you call 911 if there's domestic abuse. Certainly, if it's a really bad argument that's not being resolved, call your pastor, call your small group leader, call your parents, whoever would be most appropriate that knows you and is willing to help you. I just think that's real important that we stop the bleeding in that moment because we don't want to be overcome with evil. We want to overcome evil with good. And in the midst of the situation, you have to seek the good. And sometimes the good in that moment is to just stop the bleeding. And we got to get out of this situation because it's a dangerous situation. That would be like, you know, emergency counseling type stuff. Stop the bleeding. Number two, I would say get help right away. You want to get help right away. You know, the idea of 1 Corinthians 6 talks about why do you uh, lay them before those who have no standing in the church? It is to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise among you to handle a dispute between the brothers? You know what he's saying? I'm saying don't run to your lawyer and don't run to secular therapists. Run to the church because the church, a church like this, is able to handle with God's word a solution to your problem, which involves sin, and the solution is Christ and Scripture. And so I'm encouraging you, again, if there's the emergency and you have to call 911, that's different. But if it's just like we got to work through this, let's do it with biblical accountability and counseling, and you need to be willing to get help right away. The next one says this, don't prevent your spouse from pursuing counsel. Don't prevent your spouse from pursuing counsel. Just recently, I counseled with a couple from our church who's been married for 25 years. And this wife told me things, uh, how long has this been going on? Complicated situation. I said, how long has this been going on? She said, our whole marriage. 
I said, have you ever talked to someone? She said, no, he wouldn't let me. I looked at him. I said, is that true? He said, yeah, I didn't think that we needed help. <laughs> like, and if you knew the situation, you'd be like, you didn't think you needed help? Well, I'm so thankful. What, what changed? And he's like, I finally realized, you know, that we needed to come in. She's been insisting on it. So here we are. You know, I try not to rake him over the coals too much, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? We could have been doing this at year one. Could have been helping you out 25 years ago. I mean, I was just a baby back then, but I could have been, we could have been helping you out. And you waited 25 years. Lisa and I have committed to say, hey, look, if any one of us ever feels uncomfortable with where we're at in our marriage, and we need to seek counsel from another pastor, elder, or godly couple, preferably maybe a couple, husband and wife together, that we could go to, we're going to be willing to do that. So guess what? We have. We have. There's been times where we're like, you know what? I don't see it that way. She doesn't see it that way. So first time we did that, uh, we'd been uh, at the church. I'll just tell you what it is because I know you're wondering, like, what were you guys dealing with? All right, real quick. I'm a pastor. We had Sunday night service. I thought my wife would love Sunday night services, which she did most of the time. But with five young kids, there's occasionally she'd be like, hey, I don't think I'm going to go tonight. And I'm like, are you sick? Are the kids sick? No, I'm just tired. Well, you got to go. That was me. <laughs> Stubborn, foolish husband. Not like you, Bart. I was a stubborn, foolish husband saying, honey, you got to be there on Sunday night. I mean, I'm the pastor. I'm preaching. If you're sick or have a fever or the kids, I get it. But if you're just tired, you got to be there. She's like, I don't, I don't think that's fair. Some of the other wives don't come on Sunday night. And I'm like, well, honey, that's them. <laughs> you know, you need to be there. So she's like, all right, I think we need to go get counsel. I think we need some help. All right. Okay, babe. Fine. Who do, who do you want to call? She names this couple. Let's talk to this couple. And I'm like, let's do it. So I call them up on the phone. And I'm like, hey, dude, uh, this is Adam. Uh, Lisa and I are having like an argument or misunderstanding. This one was an argument, right? All right we're having an argument, you know, and uh, like, we need some help. And, and, he's, uh, and he's like, well, what do you, uh, like, can we come over? And he's like, yeah, come right now. You can come over right now. So we go over to their house and they're kind of nervous. There's, he's an elder at our church with his wife. And they're a little bit nervous. We walk in and they were like, what's the problem? So I explained my perspective, Lisa explained her perspective, and then they looked at us and they were like, is that it? And we're like, yeah. And they both went, man, we thought you guys had some serious marriage problem. I'm like, this is a problem. What are we supposed to do? And guess what they told us? Hey, Adam, you fool. Your wife can take a break from time to time. If she doesn't, she doesn't need to be there every Sunday night. Lisa, you can't take off every Sunday night. And she was never asking for that. But, you know, you be there when you can. But on occasion, if you need a break, let Adam know. Adam, you need to be willing to, I mean, it sounds so simple, right? But that's how stupid I am. And I'm a guy. Guys are stupid, right? And I was like insistent. Maybe it's my pride or whatever. And I was just like, and she was like, I think we need help. That's healthy, right? As a husband and a wife, if you can't agree to say, hey, we need a little bit of help. We're in a spot where we need some objective accountability, encouragement, and wisdom here. Then your marriage is in a dangerous spot. It is. If you're not willing to go or your one spouse feels like I can't. Now, sometimes Lisa might say, hey, I think we need that couple. And I'm like, honey, you can stay home tonight. You can stay home. <laughs> I'm kidding. Or it might be something else, you know, like, because sometimes we will say, should we call someone or can we work through this? And sometimes that's enough accountability to say, hey, let's work through it. And there's been another occasion that we went in. I forgot what that one was for, but there was another occasion we went in as well because we're like, we need some more help, right? We're not perfect. I hope you don't think your pastor's perfect, 
Bart calls me all the time. No, I'm kidding. I'm just totally kidding. Uh, 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 it's a total joke. All right, but I'm just saying pastors need help too. Elders need help. We all need help. It doesn't matter if you've been married 56 years. I think that couple left. You know, but it's like, it doesn't matter. Are they still here? 56 years? Yeah, they headed out. They were already good. They were good. You know, but, but uh, the 45 couple's still here, so they're, they're all right. But so I, I, don't, I think that I'm just saying it's a prideful thing if you refuse for you or your spouse to come in to get counseling. Please commit to do that with each other for the glory of Christ and the preservation of a healthy, godly marriage. So the take-home of our section, number one, are you a timid surgeon, unsure of your approach, or are you a skilled surgeon, well-trained by the master? That doesn't match with those take-homes, does it? All right, that's okay. What else you got up there? Take-home? Let's go with yours. All right, giving permission for your spouse to operate in your life will make all the difference. Isn't that true? You know what happened? I preached this series in my church. There's a sweet couple that Lisa and I are good friends with. This guy came up to me uh, that Sunday night. We, had a, we have a ser- Sunday night series in the summer. So I preached out that morning. I think he comes that night and he said, Adam, thank you so much for your message this morning. He said, you know what we did when we got home from church? And I'm like, what? And he says, I grabbed my Bible and I handed it to my wife. And to make my point, I got up on the kitchen table and laid down on my back And I told my wife, I said, honey, take this word and you can cut me wherever you want. (laughs) I'm like, you really did that? And he's like, yeah. He said, for years, I would never receive any, uh, you know, confrontation from my wife. I would just dismiss it. She would confront me and I would be like, no, no, no. I gave her my Bible, said, you cut me wherever you want. I said, did she cut you? He's like, yeah, she cut me. (laughs) But he's like, it was good. I needed it. And that's what we're saying. This is something we need. What's the next click? Let's see what we're looking at. Make sure not to think through, uh, make sure to think through an appropriate regimen of loving care in the post-op period. Sure, absolutely. You know, surgery's tough. We want to recover. We could go through a whole thing about rehab and recovery and how to, how to work through that in a way because it takes some time for healing. Is there any more clicks? All right, that's it. Okay, hopefully this has been helpful for you just to think through a few more practical ways that we could offer help to one another. It's God's word, but we're to wield the sword. And I want you to be a cheerleader and a surgeon at the same time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, conference. Thank you for the time to be together this afternoon. And I pray that you would use your word and some of these principles to help drive home in our hearts where we need to grow and change to be more like Christ. Lord, you know I still have a long way to go as a husband, as I'm learning every day about how to be more humble and to be a better listener and to be more sensitive to my wife's needs. And I know Lisa's learning and growing as well. And I just pray for all of the couples who are here that maybe today you would help them to have healthy conversations. Lord, the goal certainly wouldn't be to go home and argue about why aren't you like this or why aren't you like that, but to say, you know what, thank you for being patient with me and help Let's talk about one or two principles that we learned today or were reminded of today that would help us grow in our marriage. Would you bless marriages in that way? Conversations, follow-up conversations. May it, may it just be a, a, a help and a blessing as we want our marriages to look more like Christ in the church. Be glorified in our evening. Be with us as we prepare uh, for worship tomorrow on the Lord's Day, wherever we are, and how, wherever we're worshiping. I pray that that would be a beautiful time of growth and reflection and uh, focus on the gospel and pray that you would be glorified in all that we do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.